This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This season of Gravy is all about a little house in Marshall, North Carolina, and the people who have made it home. The residents of this house turn out some of the most innovative baking in the South. The house itself is atmospheric, sitting in a pretty nook of green mountains about a half hour outside of Asheville. It's an inspiring setting, ripe for contemplation and creativity. But the reason it's been a hotbed for baking specifically is because of the ovens. Two large wood-fired ovens anchor the property and attract a very specific type of baker to their hearths. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. You're listening to Gravy. 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 <laughs> a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories of the changing American South. This is episode two in our five-part series on baking in Appalachia. If you haven't heard episode one, we recommend you go give it a listen. There you'll learn some history of the bakery in Marshall that's been known by various names, but is now Walnut Family Bakery. If you've already listened to episode one, welcome back. In this episode, we'll focus on the ovens. They're pretty special, and they're the reason those bakers keep flocking to Marshall. Easier, more predictable baking heat sources abound. And we'll hear why Camille Cogswell has an intense relationship with these ovens. It's a love story, really. A steamy, flowery love story. Irina Zhorov has the story after this quick message. For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Camille Cogswell picks her way through tarp-covered piles and stacked bins towards the brick facade of an outdoor oven. A little bit of an obstacle course here. The mouth of the oven is a charred rainbow arch. It's well-loved and inviting. Camille removes a sheet of metal from the opening and we peer in. Um, so this oven is the smaller one. Oh, um, I know, I know, expected. right? Yeah. So, I mean, these are really production ovens. Um, so this one is about six feet deep by four feet wide. This oven's floor is almost as big as a full-size mattress. There's a second oven. Its opening is inside the bakery, and it's even bigger. Like a month after I got here, I moved in. And I started lighting fires in the oven. And I was, even if I wasn't baking, I there was a period of time in which I was just always keeping the oven warm. 
She wanted to get used to the ovens, to practice being around them and working the fire. After I had fired the oven like twice and I was like, wow, I think I'm really bad at this actually. Or just like, I need to change my approach. Camille and her partner, Drew DeTomo, bought this bakery, which also has a house on the property, in 2020. They moved here to Marshall, close to her hometown of Asheville, with a plan to start their own cottage bakery. Right now, the bakery is under construction. Camille is a seasoned baker. She's worked in a string of high-end restaurants in New York City and Philadelphia. Drew, too, is an experienced chef, and he's made pizza using live fire. But despite their expertise, neither had used an oven like this to make bread or pastries. I thought that the biggest challenge was going to be how my products would bake differently in an oven like this. But then I quickly realized after the very first time that I tried to bake in here that the biggest challenge is the fire, not the products. The products will bake mostly the same. You're not going to need to change your recipe because of the oven. But the way, you know, the, the biggest challenge was building the right fire. The way these ovens work is you build a fire inside the oven's chamber. You let that heat soak into the masonry and absorb that radiant heat. This can take many, many hours of maintaining a fire. Eventually, you let that fire go out. And then you sweep out the ashes, and then it's basically just a hot box. It functions as an oven. So you place your doughs into the oven, and voila, they bake. You have to time things carefully because the oven starts to lose heat. So high heat products like bread go first, then the pies, then the pastries. Unlike a gas or electric oven, you can't just turn up the oven once it cools or add a little fire if it doesn't seem hot enough to begin with. If the oven's not hot enough to bake in, if you miscalculated, too bad. Like, you can't add more fire because there's not any fire anymore. It means you have to make do for the day. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I'm a little scared of it. Camille's not alone. Learning how to manage the fire in the unforgiving ovens has been a rite of passage for everyone who's lived and baked here, including the person who built them. That was Jennifer Lapidus. She bought the place in 1997. She'd apprenticed with baker Alan Scott to learn to bake Flemish-style bread, which uses a centuries-old style of natural leavening. Her mentor believed the oven had to fit the bread. For Alan, it was a no-brainer because this bread was ancient, like a really old form of baking, and it was best displayed in this method of, you know, like, we're going to bake this in a wood-fired oven because this is what this bread was made, you know, how it was baked initially. Alan, who also designed wood-fired ovens, came from California and helped Jennifer build her ovens. There wasn't any model to go off of. I saw Ellen as really the pioneer, but I was sort of that second taking it to a business level. The ovens allowed Jennifer to make the kind of bread she wanted at scale. It was a philosophical choice to stick to this old method of baking, but she also tasted the difference in her bread. Her loaves told the story of the oven they came from. They had a rustic beauty and a particular kind of crust. I think you get more of that, the sugars pulled out of the crust, you know, that sort of 
edge where it's not burnt, but it's it's really pulling the sugars out and transforming into this sort of caramel um, caramelization of the crust. But, says Jennifer, that perfect crust was hard won. I definitely had a lot of stress about firewood. Jennifer procured all her own firewood. Slow-burning, dense hardwoods were best, but they weren't always easy to source. I had a 1978 F-150 pickup truck. And I, I would get my firewood from the Ethan Allen Furniture Plant, which was like really nice, four by four, eight foot long, cured. That was their waste wood. But then as I'm watching the furniture industry start to wane, their waste is also, you know, there's not much waste if they're not producing. And then they closed the plant that was closest to me. And so I was driving to Old Fort. That's about an hour away, one way. And I just had a couple experiences, like one going down there and just the sky opening up and just getting soaked to the bone. I'm thinking nobody knows when they buy a loaf of bread what goes into this. Bakers who used the space after Jennifer turned to lumber mills for scraps and to neighbors who sold them wood off their land. Camille plans to use the same sources, as well as some wood from her grandmother's land a short drive away. Once you have the wood... There's still the hours-long task of firing the oven, of making the fire burn hot and long enough for the masonry to really retain the heat. Jennifer had previously worked with wood-fired ovens, but they were smaller. I made this larger oven. It was like, oh, this, this is a whole different thing. We need longer firings. It took experimentation before she got it right and settled into doing 12-hour firings. That meant she kept the fire going for 12 hours to heat the masonry through, before she even started baking. For a long time, I had this intimidation with my oven. Like, I would, I would be more on the level of under-firing than over-firing. And, um, and I just had this, I just felt like I wasn't in a good relationship with this oven. I remember I was dating some guy at one point who had a really big ego <laughs> and, and this guy was like I can do this better and so I let him fire it and I we're looking at the fire and I was like that fire is two hours too much and I was exactly right and it was a complete wreck of a bake but I was so excited because I learned that I knew what I was doing in that moment like I knew how much was too much and I never allowed myself to see it you know so it was great because I got rid of the guy and like, <laughs> um, and learned, you know, and like at the same time, like bonded with my oven in that moment. When Jennifer and her daughter moved to Asheville around 2008, she started renting the space to a succession of bakers. One of them was Tara Jensen. Tara moved into the space and started lighting fires. Really, I just was chronically under-firing the oven, meaning, you know, it would look very hot to me. And I had a, a infrared thermometer or like, you know, temperature gun that, you know, you could point inside the oven and get the temperature there. And that's what I would use to gauge it by. But I think, oh, that's really hot. And then start baking my bread. And then you put cold bread into that hot chamber and, you know, the temperature plummets. Night after night, she'd tinker, trying the fire this way and that way until she figured it out. I'd say it took about a year, yeah, doing a, a long firing, really nice and slow to just really soak that heat 
into the masonry was a, a big takeaway and um, getting it just hotter in general, like just not being afraid to to see it kind of rage in the chamber. If it gets hot enough in there, I like to joke like wood-fired ovens are the original uh, self-cleaning oven <laughs> because it just, everything would burn off. Once she understood how to harness the fire, how to use the oven, it was more than just another skill to run her business. It was something fundamental, something ancient, like the oven itself. Once I just wasn't afraid of the fire, like everything started to really click. And I think in a lot of ways at that point in my life too, it was just also, you know, stepping into my own power and not being afraid to just really go for it. And those two things kind of happened at the same time. The oven, though, isn't something you figure out once. It's something you have to maintain day after day, night after night. It's something a baker lives with, like a particularly demanding roommate. So what's the reward for putting up with a roommate like that? When we come back, we'll hear what it's like to live with a wood-fired oven like this. And Irina Zhorov will tell us why, despite the hassle, some bakers choose to do it. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell them Gravy said hey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey. Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark Distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char in their barrels, Every step in the bourbon-making process is carefully crafted, just like Bill Samuel Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. When Tara moved to Marshall to run her bakery, Smoke Signals, 
She was seeking a reset, a period of almost monastic contemplation, and dedicating herself to her baking, it turned out, delivered just that. The way I thought about it was, okay, you know, I'm I'm using sourdough, which has a a rhythm and a timeline to it. And I'm using the wood-fired oven, which has a natural rhythm and timeline to it as well. And these are both like organic living forces. And I just had my steps that I did in the same order. And so it was just very ritualistic. A baking cycle would span days. She'd start the fire in the evening. I would obviously make sure I had all the the wood in the in the right stages. I learned pretty quickly, like I couldn't skip it. Like if I felt too tired to build an appropriate, what I call the lay fire, like the fire that's in the front that then catches everything that's behind it, that always took longer. So I'd load the oven full of wood, start the lay fire in the front. Then she'd go and feed her sourdough starters. Go back out to the oven, usually have a drink. <laughs> Make sure that, like, you know, the wood caught behind it. And then once I could see basically like a wall of fire, I would reduce the oxygen flow by putting like a couple bricks into the the mouth or the doorway of the oven and then go to bed. She'd be back out around six in the morning. I'd remove the bricks from the opening, the mouth of the oven. And then, you know, if it had fired correctly, there'd just be a bed of ash on the oven floor, and then all the the dome would be totally white. She'd take a couple of temperatures. If it was at least 550 degrees, that was good. And then usually there'd be bread waiting in the walk-in to go in, and I'd start mixing dough and baking dough, and just really, that was, that was the rhythm for, for many years. Fire, dough, bake. Fire, dough, bake. Fire as tool, fire as ritual. I just think that there's something very special about sitting down at the end of the day, lighting the oven, and just looking into the fire. If I was 100% concerned about profit and money, that I could see how you would not do a wood-fired bakery. This is Rob Segovia Welsh, who, along with his wife, Monica, runs Chicken Bridge Bakery in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. I wanted to talk to someone who's currently working with a wood-fired oven, since the ovens in Marshall are out of commission until construction wraps up. The amount of hours that it takes to do all the wood and stack the wood and make the fire and keep the fire going, if you're paying for those hours, I could see how that is just like, uh, just... Put that money into an electric oven and you can just turn that thing on and be ready to go. Instead, Rob and his family have allowed their oven to dictate their schedule. The bakery is a part of our life and the oven is a part of our life. The sourdough is a part of our life. Like There there are easier and faster ways of doing all of this, but that's not really the way we've chosen to do it. So we just work these aspects of the bakery into a lifestyle. It's a choice to slow down, to prioritize process over profit, to open oneself up and submit to the beauty and uncertainty that comes with working with an element like fire. There's like these intangible aspects of wood-fired baking that connects you, I, at least me, like I feel connected to the night and going out to fire the oven at four in the morning. Like I wouldn't normally be up at four in the morning. I wouldn't normally go outside at four in the morning, but three times a week I get up at four and go out and I see the, I see the, you know, the moon and the stars and I'm out there all by myself and it's quiet and it's dark. Rob says it's not always fun. 
Sometimes he's tired or it's cold outside and he doesn't necessarily want to mess with the oven. But he's worked with electric and gas ovens in the past, and they left him a bit cold. When I worked in other bakeries, the ba- the, the oven was just a machine. I, I don't feel like that at all with the, with the wood-fired oven. I feel like it's very much this living and breathing aspect of the bakery. I think there's an aspect of that that, keep, that always keeps the baking fresh for me. Rob told me that he started his bakery in 2007 while working for the state, doing a job that he described as soul-crushing. It was alienating and lonely. But baking the way he does has proven to be life-affirming, endlessly interesting in its demand to stay flexible and engaged. There's also the potential for connection to community, through the way he procures his locally grown flour, to the farmer's markets where he sells. It's all those things that temper the 4 a.m. wakes for him, the extra hours of work that go towards each bake in a wood-fired oven. That makes the baker's life a pretty good life. It's a romantic way to think and to live, to believe that bread can have such power. And it reminds me of a friend who once chastised me for using the word romantic in a negative sense. We should all strive for a little more romanticism, he'd said. So I asked Rob for a little tour of his morning. All right, it's about 4.30 in the morning, and I'm coming down to the bakery to get ready and start to make the fire for the day. Um, We just had a rainstorm. There's still a little bit of lightning, but mostly it's kind of warm and breezy out. Rob's got a 15-square-foot masonry oven. It's got two little metal doors that swing open so he can load the wood. Rob hasn't baked in a few days, so the oven is cool. He builds log cabins of firewood that he pushes towards the back of the oven. Then he places some wood in the front and crumples up a few flour bags to start the fire. Light the match now. paper on fire. Here we go. Rob's oven is smaller than the ones in Marshall, but it still requires long firings. Oh, that's a good looking fire. It's really going, popping. It's a funny time to be awake and working, but it makes me wonder how many other bakers are up in their ovens now, getting their dough ready. How many bakers throughout history started their days like this, just getting the fire going? The fire is in some ways a link to bakers of the past, though it seems like those bakers don't give up their secrets easily. When I visited Camille Cogswell, the current owner of the Marshall Bakery, she said she'd been scouring books for guidance. There is little to no information about literally building fires in masonry bread ovens. It's this basic tool of her craft, and yet she's left with so many questions. Wait, like, how long do I need to do it to get to the right temperature? Like, this book 
is saying, you know, maybe three or four hours, but like it's definitely not anywhere up to a temperature to bake in after three or four hours. So like what even is my reference point here for how long? But also I think that, you know, the book wasn't saying how big the oven was and these ovens are really big. So, um, you know, I had to ask yeah, people who had worked in these specific ovens before and who had experience here. One of the people she reached out to was Tara Jensen, the former Marshall tenant. She, in turn, quoted a piece of advice from another baker. And so she told me, you know, you just got to start, you just got to start building fires. That's, that's how you learn how to make the right fires is you just make fires over and over again. So as soon as construction is done, Camille plans to resume doing just that. Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zhurov. Her first novel, Believers, will be published by Scribner in 2023. Thanks to Bethany Sands for mastering these episodes. We also thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Gravy's publisher is Mary Beth Lassiter. Olivia Terenzio helps to edit Gravy, and Katie King is our fact checker. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch SFA films and to engage with thought-provoking talks from our fall symposium. And visit us at southernfoodways.org to become a member or make a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Sarah Camp Milam. I'm Melissa Hall. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around.